I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about some recent opinions and our new SCOTUS book club. And Elizabeth chatted with Sixth Circuit Judge Alice Batchelder. So there's still no word from the court about what is happening with the postponed arguments from the March sitting or what will happen with the April sitting, which is slated to begin on April 20th. But the justices have been keeping busy. And over the last two weeks, they issued rulings in six cases. So we're going to run through some of those. So first up is Allen versus Cooper. This was a unanimous opinion uh, written by Justice Elena Kagan. A couple of the justices wrote concurrences, but everybody joined, at least in the judgment of the court. The court held that Congress lacked the authority to abrogate states' immunity from copyright infringement lawsuits when it passed the Copyright Remedy Clarification Act of 1990. So uh, by way of background, federal courts may only hear suits against non-consenting states if Congress unequivocally abrogated state sovereign immunity and had valid constitutional authority to do so. So in this case, Frederick Allen, who is a photographer, sued the state of North Carolina after it published his copyrighted videos and photos of the recovery effort of Blackbeard's pirate ship, the Queen Anne's Revenge, which was found off the coast of North Carolina about a decade ago. The state moved to dismiss the suit on sovereign immunity grounds, and the district court denied that motion, finding that the uh, Congressional Act I mentioned before showed Congress's clear intent to abrogate state sovereign immunity. The district court pointed to Section 5 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which authorizes Congress to enforce requirements of due process uh, as the source of congressional authority. On appeal at the Fourth Circuit, uh, that court reversed, finding that Congress could not rely on the 14th Amendment and that the Supreme Court had held in a case called Florida Prepaid uh, versus College Savings Board in 1999 that Congress could not rely on its Article I authority over copyrights to abrogate state sovereign immunity. So at the Supreme Court, uh, the justices affirmed the Fourth Circuit, explaining that neither Article I nor the 14th Amendment authorizes Congress to strip states' sovereign immunity in copyright infringement suits. So in the Florida prepaid case, the court had rejected Congress's attempt to use Article I powers to put states on the same footing as private parties in patent infringement suits. And the, uh, the copyright law did the same thing for copyright infringement. So in order for Congress to invoke Section 5 of the 14th Amendment as authority, the court explained that there must be a congruence and proportionality between the injury to be prevented and the means adopted to that end. The court reasoned that Congress did not identify a pattern of states' unconstitutional copyright infringement. A Justice Clarence Thomas concurred in part and in the judgment, noting that whether copyrights are property within the meeting of the 14th Amendment's due process clause is an open question. He declined to join the majority in its discussion of needing a special justification to overrule an erroneous past decision, uh, explaining that the petitioner here did not make the case that the Florida prepaid case is incorrect uh, or much less demonstra demonstrably erroneous. Justice Breyer concurred in the judgment, 
joined by Justice Ginsburg, writing that he disagreed with the holding in Florida prepaid, but recognized that his longstanding view of state sovereign immunity has not carried the day. Uh, it seems that Justice Breyer, or perhaps one of his clerks, had a little bit of fun with this concurrence. It has a number of uh, nautical phrases throughout, uh, discussing uh, states, you know, being required to pay when what they have plundered, and that uh, the court's sovereign immunity uh, precedents uh, have been on an, an uncertain voyage. Uh, so anyway, it's it it's one uh, that's worth reading if if you have free time, which a lot of us do these days. The court next decided Sitgo Asphalt Refining Company versus Friscotti Shipping Company, which involved a long-running maritime contract dispute. I bet Judge Duncan um, is having a heyday reading all of these opinions (laughs) this week since he um, is really into maritime law, since he taught it as a law professor at Ole Miss. Um, And I'm sure he's going to be looking at at Justice Breyer's um, concurrence there for Mm -hmm. some some maritime puns for his own own opinions, um, which he has already done. Um, But anyway, this case involves an oil tanker called the Athos One, and in 2004, it alighted with an abandoned nine-ton anchor on the bed of the Delaware River. The anchor punctured the tanker's hull um, and caused 264,000 gallons of heavy crude oil to spill into the river. The Friscotti Shipping Company, who owned the Athos One, and the U.S. covered the cost of the cleanup, but then they sought to reclaim those costs from petitioner Sitgo, um, which had chartered the Athos One. So Friscotti in the U.S. claimed that Sitgo breached a contractual safe berth clause, which obligated Sitgo to select a safe berth that would allow the Athos One to come and go, quote, always safely afloat. And in a 7-2 opinion written by Justice Sotomayor, the court held that the plain language of the safe birth clause established a warranty of safety, imposing liability for an unsafe birth. Um, Even though the word warranty wasn't present in the contracts under the dispute, under maritime contract law, statements of material fact in a charter party are warranties regardless of their label. Justice Thomas dissented, joined by Justice Alito, arguing that reading the safe birth clause to bind the charter to a warranty of safety would necessarily imply that the safe birth clause creates contradictory warranties of safety, one for the charter and one for the vessel master. And because that conflict can't exist, the safe birth clause must not bind the charter to a warranty of safety fascinating stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Next up is Comcast Corp versus National Association of African-American Owned Media. So this was a unanimous ruling uh, with Justice Gorsuch writing for the court. The court vacated the opinion of the Ninth Circuit and remanded the case back. Uh, So an African-American owned TV network had sued Comcast for refusing to carry their channels. Comcast cited a lack of programming demand, bandwidth constraints, and a preference for programming that was not offered by that network. Uh, And the network then sued Comcast, alleging racial discrimination under uh, 42 U.S.C. Section 1981, which is the federal law that guarantees all persons the same right to make and enforce contracts as white citizens. 
So the district court dismissed the lawsuit for failing to show that but for racial animus, Comcast would have contracted with this network. And then on appeal at the Ninth Circuit, that court reversed, finding that Section 1981 only required the network to show that race played some role in Comcast's decision. So up at the Supreme Court, uh, the justices held that Section 1981 did not create an exception to the general rule that tort plaintiffs bear the burden of proving but for causation for their injury. And that burden applies throughout the life of a lawsuit. Uh, this is supported not only by the text of the statute, but by the larger structure and history of the Civil Rights Act of 1866. So the network had urged the court to apply a motivating factor causation test uh, of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, applying that to Section 1981. But the court had already uh, previously rejected this effort in other contexts, I think twice, and said that there was no reason to think it would fit any better here. Justice Ginsburg concurred in the judgment and wrote that the court should have also held that Section 1981's ban on racial discrimination covers not only the final decision whether to enter into a contract, but also the earlier stages of the contract formation process. In a footnote to the majority opinion, the court said that this issue was not before it and it reserved that question for another day. Next up is Guerrero Lasprilla versus Barr. So the Immigration and Nationality Act provides for judicial review of a final government order directing the removal of an alien from this country. Um, but Section 1252A2C limits the scope of that review where the removal is based on the fact that the alien has committed certain crimes. And Section 1252A2B, A2D, sorry, the limited review provision says that in such instances, courts may only consider uh, constitutional claims or questions of law. And in this case, the two petitioners were aliens who had lived in the United States and committed certain drug offenses, and they were removed. Typically, removed aliens have 90 days from the date of the entry of the final administrative order of removal to file a motion to reopen their proceeding. But petitioners asked the Board of Immigration Appeals to reopen their removal proceedings 13 and 18 years later, well beyond the 90-day um, time limit, and they argued that the 90-day time limit should be equitably told. Now, equitable tolling can typically occur only where individuals have exercised due diligence. So the board denied their motions and the Fifth Circuit declined to hear the case um, at all, holding that it did not have jurisdiction to hear petitioners' claims for equitable tolling because the claims presented factual rather than legal questions. In an opinion by Justice Breyer, joined by the chief, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Kagan, Ginsburg, and Sotomayor, the Supreme Court reversed, holding that mixed questions of law and fact, such as this due diligence inquiry fell within the scope of questions of law as contemplated by the statute. Um, Justice Thomas dissented, joined by Justice Alito in part, contending that the court's interpretation contradicts the plain language of the statute and would also significantly significantly increase the amount of litigation, um, something which Congress had expressly sought to avoid in the statute. Next up is uh, Collar versus Kansas. 
This was a, a an opinion written by Justice Kagan, uh, joined by the Chief Thomas Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, and the court held that the due process clause does not require states to adopt a specific insanity defense to criminal liability. So Kansas is one of a handful of states that does not exonerate a defendant who proves that mental illness prevented him from recognizing that his criminal act was morally wrong. Instead, Kansas permits a defendant to use evidence of mental illness to show that he lacked the requisite uh, mens rea or mental state. It also allows a defendant to invoke mental illness at sentencing to justify a reduced sentence or commitment to a mental health facility instead of imprisonment. The criminal defendant in this case was convicted of murdering his estranged wife, two daughters, and his wife's grandmother, and he challenged his capital murder sentence, arguing that the state abolished the insanity defense in violation of the Due Process Clause and the Eighth Amendment. So the Supreme Court refused to consider the Eighth Amendment argument because it was not raised below and rejected the due process argument because the relationship between insanity, morality and criminal culpability is, quote, a project for state governance, not constitutional law. So recognizing that uncertainties about the human mind loom large and that historically many different approaches to insanity have been tried, the court refused to freeze the dialogue between law and psychiatry into a rigid constitutional mold. Justice Breyer dissented, joined by Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor, and Breyer wrote that, in his view, tradition demands that an insane defendant should not be found guilty in the first place uh, because Kansas's approach allows one who is insane to be convicted, it's deviated too far from traditional pa- practice and therefore violated due process. And finally, we have Davis versus United States. And this was a per curiam opinion where the court held that federal rule of criminal procedure 52B does not immunize factual errors from plain error review. So the petitioner in this case was sentenced in federal district court to a term of imprisonment to run consecutively to any sentences that state courts might impose for related state offenses. The petitioner didn't object to the sentence or its consecutive nature, but he later appealed to the Fifth Circuit, arguing for the first time that his state and federal offenses were part of the same course of conduct, and the district court erred in ordering them to run consecutively. Now, normally, when criminal defendants fail to raise an argument in district court, an appellate court may review the issue only for plain error. But here, the Fifth Circuit refused to entertain the petitioner's argument at all based on circuit precedent um, that says certain questions of fact can never constitute plain error. The Supreme Court vacated the judgment in this case, remanded the case for further proceedings um, and said that neither Rule 52B's text nor the court's cases purport to shield any category of errors from plain error review. And the court also granted one new case for next term, Brownback versus King, which was brought by the Institute for Justice. In this case, James King sued the United States and some officers 
after members of a joint FBI law enforcement task force in Grand Rapids, Michigan, wrongly thought he was the fugitive they were looking for, and they beat him up pretty badly. So he sued the U.S. under the Federal Tort Claims Act, which waives the sovereign immunity of the United States and creates cause of action for damages for certain torts. And he sued the officers under Bivens versus six unknown named agents of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and Section 1983. There's a lot more to this case that we don't have time to get into today, but the question presented is whether a final judgment in favor of the United States in an action brought under Section 1346B1 of the Federal Tort Claims Act on the ground that a private person would not be liable to the claimant under state tort law for the injuries alleged bars a claim under Bivens that is brought by the same claimant based on the same injuries and against the same uh, governmental employees whose acts have given rise to the claimant's um, federal tort claims claim. Um, So we will get into that um, more as that argument approaches. So next up, Tiffany and I are starting a SCOTUS book club, or at least we're going to try to. Uh, So Mark Walsh wrote a piece for the ABA Journal last week discussing the history of the Supreme Court and its closings. And he quotes uh, Natalie Wexler, who worked on the documentary history of the United States Supreme Court, 1789 to 1800, and mentioned that Wexler also wrote a book about the wives of some of the early justices. And that piqued my interest. So I went on Amazon and I found the book, A More Obedient Wife by Natalie Wexler. And it's about the wives of Justices James Iredell and James Wilson. And it says uh, that they find themselves swept up in the events of the federal government's turbulent first decade. So it's a fictionalized account, uh, but includes correspondence between the justices and their wives. So we are both planning to read it and report back. Uh, And we hope that uh, listeners, if you want to join along and read it as well, that you'll check it out. Next up, I recently spoke with Judge Alice Batchelder. Alice Batchelder is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Welcome to SCOTUS 101. Thank you. So you've been a judge for many years now, but I'd like to start with your early career. You were the only woman in your class at the University of Akron Law School. So tell me what that was like. Well, it was interesting, to say the least. It was a small class because um, I started shortly after the Tet Offensive in the Vietnam War, so um, a lot of young men were not able to be attending school anymore. They were in, in the service. So I was the only woman in the class, and so for the first term, uh, none of the guys would talk to me. Well, a couple of them did, but mostly to explain to me how best to study. So... Um, I found that a little unusual as an approach, but um, I really was pretty busy anyway because I was doing a lot of things outside of law school, so I didn't have a lot of time to be talking to the guys in the class. Um, The most difficult part of that whole thing was that um, I actually did very well um, my first term in law school. 
my husband would always say, the best revenge is to live well. And I did. <laughs> I, I, I beat them all. And so on my first day back for the second term, I missed the first day of class because my husband was being sworn in for his first term as a member of the Ohio legislature. So the next morning I arrived in the parking lot um, and there was a, one of my classmates was standing there and he looked like he was waiting for me. And I thought, well, this is unusual. Uh, so I got out of my car and he said to me, you're back. I said, well, yes, I am. He said, we had all hoped you wouldn't be. I said, well, thanks for your support. Gosh. Um, but it got better during that term. Um, but at the end of the year, of the first year, I was first in my class, but they awarded the award for having the best point accum to the number two person because the dean said that I didn't need that award. I knew what I was going to be doing after law school, but that the number two person did which has always struck me as not a very good way to be um, awarding people for merit. Nonetheless, um, the rest of my law school experience was very good. I enjoyed it, and I made a lot of good friends in the class, all men. And you certainly have had the, the best revenge of living very well. Yes, I have. So now I understand you know you had a lot going on in your personal life uh, during particularly your 1L year. You mentioned you know your, your husband joining the... Uh, the legislature. So, so could you talk a little bit about uh, the things you were balancing while you were in law school? Well, yes. Um, my husband um, ran for the legislature um, in 1968, and he was drafted during the, his primary campaign. Um, we had a Democrat draft board, and Bill was very much a conservative Republican. So off he went to Fort Knox, uh, and we had sunk everything we had into that campaign, and we weren't smart enough to know that you couldn't possibly win if you weren't there. So he went to Fort Knox for basic training, and I ran his campaign. Well, he did win. It was a four-man primary, and he won by a huge margin, 109 votes, as I recall. And uh, so in the fall, uh, in my first term of law school, I was running his general election campaign. So I was going to school every morning, going to class, coming home, um, and either campaigning all afternoon and studying until one or two in the morning and going to bed and getting up the next morning to do it again, or coming home and studying all afternoon and then doing campaign events in the evening. So it was... Um, it was um, Stressful that first term. But once it was over, Bill was elected and he went to the legislature and things kind of calmed down considerably. So then after graduating, you worked in private practice for a while and you served on the bankruptcy court for two years before President Reagan appointed you to the district court. When you think back on those days, is there anything that really stands out? Well, one thing that stands out is it was a real honor to have been appointed by President Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. Um I loved the district court. I really enjoyed the trial court. Um, and the, when you're on the trial court, especially the federal trial court, you're always in a situation where you have sort of, to use a metaphor, four or five balls in the air at the same time, and you can't <laughs> let any of them hit the ground. You've got to be able to catch them all as they come down. Um, so there are times when you're working under an awful lot of stress, and then times when it's a sort of a lull period. Um, I really enjoyed living that way. Um, I enjoyed working with juries. Um, it was just a, a wonderful experience. So now, speaking of your time on the district court, I've heard about a particular case involving Timmy the gorilla. Could you tell me about that? 
Yes, that that is the case I seem to be best known for. <laughs> um, I, I was in the midst of a fairly hefty criminal trial when um, some people who were very concerned about um, animal rights um, filed a motion for a temporary restraining order, uh, which I drew, uh, to keep the Cleveland Zoo from sending Timmy the gorilla. He was a lowland gorilla uh, and part of the lowland gorilla breeding program across the country. Um, they wanted to keep him uh, in Cleveland and not allow the zoo, which owned him, to send him to the Bronx Zoo as part of the breeding program. So um, I agreed to have a hearing on the motion, but I said it would have to be very early. So it was at 6 o'clock in the morning. And we got calls from all over, including calls from London, wanting to know now, this is 6 o'clock in the evening, right? And we <laughs> said, no, 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 6 o'clock in the morning. And little old ladies who were frequent visitors to Timmy who wanted to know where would they park at that hour in the morning to come to the hearing. And so the morning of the hearing, the marshals told people that Timmy was in the jury room. That was not very helpful. <laughs> um, but so they presented their legal arguments, of which they didn't have any. Um, the Eighth Amendment does not apply to gorillas. Um, but they were very worried that Timmy would be separated from his wife, Kate, if he was sent to the Bronx. Well, at the end of the hearing, I ordered that Timmy could be sent to the Bronx, and off he went. And a number of months later, um, I was by that time on the Court of Appeals, and I was um, in a hotel, and I saw Timmy on the big screen, television screen in the lobby. And they were talking about how Timmy had adapted well to his, <laughs> to his harem. And one of them, Patty, they said, was pregnant. And I thought, well... Isn't that lovely? Because one of the reasons that they had not wanted that the plaintiffs in the case had not wanted him sent off was they were certain that he had a very low sperm count. Apparently, they were incorrect. Um, <laughs> in any event, a couple months after that, um, I was having dinner with my uh, brother-in-law, who is a, a an entertainment lawyer in Manhattan, and he said, "Oh, by the way, I was in the Bronx just the other day." And I thought I'd just go see how Timmy was doing. Well, I'm gullible. So I said, oh, and did you go? Oh, yes, I did. I said, well, did you see him? I did. I said, well, how's he doing? He said, well, I don't know exactly, but he was wearing this huge button, and it said, hell of a judge. <laughs> That's great. So as you mentioned, uh, you... Uh, you were appointed to the Sixth Circuit by President George H.W. Bush. Uh, so what have been some of the highlights uh, during your time on the Court of Appeals? Well, you know, when you're on the Court of Appeals, everything you do is sort of retread. So you don't have original stories like Timmy uh, from the <laughs> Court of Appeals. Um, and I've always been very hesitant to try to zero in on any particular cases mm -hmm. But I'll tell you, two of the real highlights of my being on the Court of Appeals were, one, I was invited by Ed Meese at Heritage to do the Joseph Story lecture, which I did. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, uh, Ed Meese, those of us who are old and who were part of the movement very early on, view Ed Meese as the keeper of the flame. And, Indeed. Uh, to have been asked by him to do that and then to uh, receive his accolades for my performance on the court, not necessarily giving the lecture, um, has always been a highlight. And similarly, um, I was given the Ronald Reagan Jurisprudence Award um, by the Claremont Institute uh, a few years ago, and that, again, was something that I'm uh, extremely proud of. 
So uh, shifting gears a little bit, your your chambers are located in Medina, Ohio, and I've heard you're a bit of uh, an unofficial ambassador for the city. So what are some of your favorite spots in Medina? First of all, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm an unofficial ambassador. We're in a little federal building there, but nobody knows who we are or what's going <laughs> on there, uh, which is great. Keeping a low fo- profile is good. Medina is a wonderful small town, and, and it centers around a public square. And um, I've always been extreme. I've been there for over 50 years now, and mm-hmm. I've just always been very fond of the square and some of the activities that go on there. Every summer, for example, there are um, Friday night band concerts in the square, and Tons of people show up, um, and they bring their lawn chairs and their grandchildren and their kids, and it's just a a really nice place to be. Um, That's wonderful. So now, I've heard you have a bit of a specific dress code in your chambers. Could you talk about that? Well, when we first moved back to Medina from Cleveland, we were in a totally unfinished building, and I told everybody that this was the perfect opportunity to just come to work in jeans. And (laughs) we've done that ever since, except in the summertime, it's shorts. But the point is, we're the only people in our building, and no one comes to see us except the UPS guy, and in the summer, he's wearing shorts. (laughs) So no real reason to have to be dressed up, and it does save on the dry cleaning bills and the having to buy new clothing. Now, I've heard in the winter there's a particular part of the dress code uh, that you encourage clerks to show a little bit of their personality. You've been talking to one of my clerks, haven't you? (laughs) Guilty. (laughs) Well, yes. Many years ago, one of my clerks gave me um, a a bizarre pair of slippers. And in the wintertime, we do ask everybody to shed their outside footwear um, at the door so that we don't track salt all over the carpets in the building. And so... Uh, so I wander around in the wintertime wearing a pair of hedgehog slippers, <laughs> and others are free to bring whatever. Um, you know, we've had bear claws. We've had, I can't even remember what else. I have a pair of uh, penguin slippers. Someone has penguin slippers now. Maybe you need a pair of Timmy, uh, Timmy the Gorilla slippers. You know, I've never seen those. <laughs> Perhaps someone could, could start a fad. <laughs> uh, so speaking of your clerks, they call you RJ. Do you care to tell me what that stands for? When I was appointed to the bankruptcy court, um, I was sworn in by an amazing judge who was a district court judge. Um, uh, His name was John Manos, and he was always my mentor. Uh, But he was a kind of a scary-looking figure, and most of the people in the courthouse were afraid of him. But my children, um, my daughter at the time was almost five, uh, they held the Bible for me while Judge Manos swore me in, and they were very, very impressed by Judge Manos. And a few days after I was sworn in, my daughter and I were driving through downtown Medina, and I stopped at a traffic light, and she said, Now, Mother, if you were a real judge like Judge Manos, would you have to stop for this red light? (laughs) I said, "Uh, yes, Lil, even Judge Manos stops for traffic lights. Um, A couple years later, when I was formally sworn in on the district court, uh, the next morning I came downstairs and my kitchen was plastered with signs made by my children that said things like, Mommy is a real judge now. (laughs) And I told my secretaries that. And from that point on, I've always just been RJ for any inner um, office communications, um, standing for real judge. (laughs) (laughs) So is there anything in particular you like to do with your clerks? I've heard you're quite a, a roller coaster enthusiast. 
we used to go every summer to Cedar Point, which really is one of the best mm-hmm. amusement parks for roller coasters in the world. And so we they have the the Beast, right? The, no. the wooden roller coaster. Um, is that Cedar Point? I think the Beast is actually down south, but they have the Magnum, which is a mm-hmm. fabulous roller coaster. But they also have the Blue Streak, which is the old-fashioned wooden roller coaster, which is still one of the best rides Mm -hmm. anywhere around. But we used to do that um, every summer, gather up anybody who'd ever been associated with us who wanted to come, and we would all meet at Cedar Point and have a great day. That is, however, uh, where I was the day that I called back to Chambers, because I always promised the one secretary who hated amusement parks, um, I promised that I would check in. So I did that day, and she said, oh, thank goodness you called. I said, oh, who filed a TRO now? And she said, no, no, the White House called, and they want to know when you would be available to speak to the president. This would have been H.W. Bush with regard to my nomination. And I said, uh, you, you didn't tell them I was at Cedar Point, did you? <laughs> said, of course not. <laughs> That's great. I've also heard that... Uh, you're you're a bit of a runner, and um, you don't listen to music when you run. You listen to something else. What what do you listen to? I listen to uh, the King James version of the Bible, and I'm on my third time through. There's always something new. Um, I only took up jogging, and I would not say I'm a runner. <laughs> I am a slow jogger, but I took it up about three years ago for some health reasons, and I've become just really addicted to it. Um, I, I tell my kids, I run every morning that I can. I run in the, in the cemetery, and I tell my kids that I run in the cemetery to make it easy for them. Um, <laughs> but I love it, and I try to run two to three miles three or four times a week. That's really great. I, I think it would be... At least for me, it would be hard to run listening to someone talking. You know, I, I like to listen to music because the beat kind of helps me get into a get into a pace. Uh, but I'm not much of a runner myself. Well, I really enjoy um, listening to uh, the scripture when I'm running. Um, I, I very much look forward to that as part of what I look forward to when mm-hmm. I run. Yeah. So, what's uh, shifting gears a bit? What's something that you wish you had known when you were just starting out in your career? That's an an almost impossible question to answer. I mean, I'm looking back now on uh, well over 40 years, including my time in the practice. Um, I think what I really wish I would have understood, and it ties in with what I listen to when I'm running, I wish I would have realized that whatever it, it seems is happening now, whatever stresses or pressures or disappointments, when I look back, it will be very, very clear that the hand of the Lord was there. One final question, something I ask all guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? That is not a hard question. It would be Clarence Thomas. Um, He is certainly the member of the court now whom I most admire. Um, I've been privileged to get to know him a little bit. Um, I've been able to spend some time with him on several occasions. I was able to introduce him to a a gathering uh, twice, actually. I was able to bring him to Grove City College. Um, I'm on the board of trustees there, and he and I did a conversation for the the town and the college. It was a a great experience. Uh, He is just an, an amazing person. 
And I think the question, and I have asked him this, but <laughs> I would ask him again, how does he manage to maintain his equilibrium, his calm, his sense of humor, and still and turn out consistently outstanding opinions in the face of the kind of criticism he has always taken, which in my yeah. view is entirely unfounded and really rather vicious. Yeah. Have you seen uh, the documentary, The New One Created Equal? I have not, but it has finally come to Columbus, Ohio, and that is um, one of the things I will be doing in the very near future. Yeah, it's really, it's wonderful. Well, Judge, thank you so much for joining me. It was my pleasure. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, April Fool's edition. I'm going to try to stump Tiffany. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. So first question. Uh, a judge from this state accidentally resigned from office in an April Fool's joke gone wrong. <laughs> oh, no. Um, I'm going to guess Texas because I remember reading something. I don't know if it was an April Fool's joke, but I think a Texas judge accidentally resigned when he announced... Oh, this is it. When he announced he was going to run for the Texas Supreme Court and under Texas law, I guess that automatically means you resign any other judicial position you hold. So I'm going to say Texas just like statistically. Uh, that is correct. And did you look this up? Because you got basically everything that happened. So um, Harris County Civil Court Judge Bill McLeod announced on social media that on April Fool's Day uh, that he was planning to run for the Texas Supreme Court. And he didn't realize that there was a provision in the Texas Constitution that says announcing candidacy for another office shall constitute an automatic resignation of office then held. So as it turns out, he he did have ambitions for a higher office and he had filed the necessary paperwork with the Texas Ethics Commission um, to uh, to begin you know, a campaign for the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, he didn't realize that this Texas constitutional provision existed and um, he was brought before the county commission, which determined that his resignation was complete and the commission selected someone else to replace him. So it was just four months into his tenure as a judge and it, it ended then. That uh, really sucks. And I didn't know this was, was it meant to be an April Fool's joke though? Well, I thought it, it, it sounds like maybe not. Uh, he just didn't, he didn't realize that announcing it would, would trigger the, the resignation, uh, provision in the, in the constitution. So. Yeah. What a way to end your judicial career. Just four months into his time. Um, yeah, he told the, the commission, uh, you know, I take it back and I want to stay on this court for my four year term. And they said, you know, we're really sorry, but we, we can't. We can't let you do that. And they appointed someone else. So that was the end of um, Bill McLeod's uh, short tenure. Okay, next question. So this is not April Fool's per se, but it's a practical joke, kind of. Um, okay, so this justice once wore pinstripe robes with the Yankees logo on it. Oh, Pinstripe robes with the Yankees logo. The only judge that I'm aware of wearing extra things on their robes was um, Chief Justice Rehnquist, but I don't think it was a Yankees. Um, 
I don't know. Was this a Supreme Court justice? Yes. yes. Oh, it was. Um, Yankee. Oh, it's got to be Justice Stevens. Um, no, he was a Chicago Cubs fan. Oh, so it was <laughs> longtime New York Yankees fan, Sonia Sotomayor. And right. Justice Gorsuch has shared this anecdote saying that uh, all of the justices were lined up in their their cloaking room, uh, which is, I guess, kind of like an antechamber before they enter the actual courtroom. And she was wearing these pinstripe robes with the Yankees logo on it. I guess there had been a, you know, a big win. I don't, I don't know when this when this occurred. Um, and someone finally said to her, Sonia, are you really going to wear that into the court? And she said, no, I was just waiting for one of you to ask. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. OK, third question. This might be kind of a hard one, but it's it's entertaining. This okay. U.S. district court heard a case stemming from a London company's April Fool's joke. Uh, so Harrods Department Store, which is the London company, announced that it would float shares. It meant that you would be able to buy shares in a floating location. But a news outlet thought that this meant the company was going public. Uh, you want the case name or the court? I it's in the U.S. I have no idea. Okay, um, let's go with I don't know California. Uh, no, it's the Southern District of New York. I didn't expect you to know it, but I thought that was pretty entertaining. So the case is Dow Jones versus Harrods, and it begins to the question: What is in a joke? This lawsuit gives a decidedly wooden answer. A federal case. So Dow Jones um, and company, which owns the Wall Street Journal, mistook Harrod's announcement about floating shares uh, and reported that the company was planning a public stock offering. And this ended up in a uh, an ongoing legal battle. This is why lawyers ruin everything. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Okay, fourth and final question. I'm ready. Which justice was born on April 1st? Oh, well, I've already been on Twitter today. So I know that it was Justice Alito. That is correct. And he's celebrating his 70th birthday this year. Now, I looked over all of the justices to see if there have been any other April Fool's Day babies, um, which that actually took kind of a long time because I I couldn't find a list that actually listed all of their birthdays uh, for, you know, you can find one of the current justices, but not all of the justices throughout history. But unfortunately, there weren't any other April Fool's Day babies as far as I could find. But I did discover that Justice Stanley Reed, who was appointed by FDR, died on April 2nd, 1980. So not exactly April Fool's Day. Anyway, well, these were these were tough questions, yeah, but tough. I was very impressed you got the Texas uh, the, the Texas one. Well, that I, was... it scarred me reading about that. I think this was only last year, and yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it definitely scarred me. So that's why I remembered it. Yeah, maybe we'll have to take a look and see what uh, former judge Bill McLeod is up to now that he's no longer on on that uh, county court, and see what he's up to now. Definitely. (laughs) Well, thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating. Please also follow us on Twitter 
and Instagram at SCOTUS101. And you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit heritage.org.